when they got to the chapel, they were running out of money, and he, his, his vision wasn't executed the way that he designed it. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. With us is a special guest, Sarah Phillips, who's architect of the Naval Academy, one of the most important jobs here at the Naval Academy. Sarah, welcome back to Preble Hall. Thank you. What's your real title? <laughs> <laughs> how, and, and how many titles have you had since you've been here? Oh, great question. Um, so my, my title now is Deputy for Facilities and Construction. I got that title in 2016, I believe, was when that one changed. Prior to that, I was architect of the Naval Academy, which was my favorite title. I loved that one. <laughs> um, prior to that, I was uh, executive director for gift projects. And because I wasn't doing only gift-funded construction and design projects, we looked at that title and said, it really doesn't fit what I'm doing. Um, so we changed it to a broader architectural title. I, I was asked, what do you want to be called? And I, I liked the architect of the Capitol title, so I thought, <laughs> what, let's just say it's architect of the Naval Academy. Which um, is appropriate. Yeah, yeah. George Lang, our chief of staff prior to, um, well, actually, Valerie Overstreet was in there too. So we've had a couple chief of staff since he left. But he thought a broader deputy for facilities and construction accurately described what I do and it accurately described my reporting to the superintendent. So um, kind of communicating that to the CNIC and NAFAC world that I represent the superintendent and the senior leadership team on anything related to facilities and construction. That was what we were trying to message with that title change. Um, so I think, it, I think it accurately describes what I do, but I, I still like Architect of the Naval Academy better. Long answer. I'm going to call you Architect of the Naval Academy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been here for, is it 20 years now? Yeah, I started here in 2000. I was a contractor. I actually was working for RTKL, who was doing the Bancroft Hall renovation. Um, I was the lead architect on the center section renovation, which is Memorial Hall, um, Smoke Hall, the kind of the rotunda as you walk in that grand space it was the only wing of Bancroft that had a true historic preservation element to it why does only one wing have historic preservation um the the other wings were gutted so they were completely reorganized all the all the interiors were gutted um walls were removed rooms were reorganized um so it was it was a basically entire gut on the other wings. Center section obviously never would want to do that there. Um, and, and for folks that haven't been to the academy, the Bancroft Hall is the is the dormitory for midshipmen. There are eight wings that right. have been constructed over time. It didn't always have eight wings. Right, right. And it, I think it's still the largest dormitory in the world, isn't it? That's what we say. Yeah. I've never actually verified that, but that is what we say. Okay, we'll I say it anyway. We brag, we brag that <laughs> talking point, whether it's true or not. So why was that one wing not renovated like the others? It's the most historical, and it has the most important um, operational, not, not most important operational, but most important historical spaces in it. It 
Memorial Hall is where we memorialize our fallen alumni who are lost in, um, in operational losses. So it's a very important hall, very important space for the Naval Academy. I've heard people call it the Chapel of the Navy or the Chapel of the Naval Academy. Obviously, we have the large chapel, but it's a very important sacred space to us. What goes into changes? Because, I mean, you've, you've experienced a lot of changes here in the past 20 years with renovations, mm -hmm. new construction. Who do you have to get permission from? Or does it suddenly magically, you know, you, you spread, uh, you know, magic dust all over the place and they, these buildings suddenly are renovated. But who, you have to get permission from people. I mean, what goes into yeah. a change to a building or even to construction of a new building here? Yeah, it's um, a lot of a lot of oversight. We call it a lot of help from the State Historic Preservation Office, and I don't mean that in a a bad way. They um, look at literally every single project here, and they have um, the ability to say no, it's not appropriate. What, now, this is a federal and, facility, the United States Naval Academy. Why does a state entity in Maryland have oversight? I need, I need to look this up, but I think it was 1961, the National Preservation Law was written into law. Um, so it, it, uh, it gave authority to the states for federal properties and said the states shall establish a um, state historic preservation officer and provide oversight of federal properties and the, the management of, of historic properties on those federal properties. So that was, that was part of that law. Um, section 106, 106 is what we fall under in that law. So you'll hear people refer to Section 106 consultation. Um, it, that's an important process that we have to follow. We can't ignore the process. Um, the only way we can um, kind of work through a disagreement with the SHPO is if the Secretary of the Navy weighs in and says, um, you know, this, this disagreement is going to, I'm going to override it and we're going to proceed with the undertaking, the project or the undertaking, whatever it is. And we have to because it's so operationally important to the Navy to do it this way. So we've only um, done that one time, and I cover it a little bit in this talk. Um, Isherwood, Griffin, Melville building, when, that, when those, that group of buildings was demolished. And that was all to make way for the new alumni, yeah. alumni hall, which, ho which can house all the midshipmen, or, uh, the brigade of midshipmen for a talk or for a graduation if they have right. to hold it inside. Yeah, right, right, right. When were those taken down? So um, that's a great question. I, Alumni Hall was built in 1992. I think it was completed. It was called the Brigade Activity Center because it was intended to be this multi-purpose space for the brigade to gather. So it's sports, it's lectures, it's everything. Um, I think they were, pr they were definitely demolished just prior to that. So I think it was late 80s that it probably happened. Rodney... Uh, Little, Mr. Mr. Little was the State Historic Preservation Officer at the time, and he opposed demolition of those buildings. And the Secretary of the Navy said, we're proceeding anyway. Um, the Brigade Activity Center, now called Alumni Hall, had a lot of congressional support. It was a split-funded building. 
So it was, it was the first really large gift-funded building here on the yard. Um, and it was split-funded, so it was really unique. If you look at the legislation for it, Congress provided half of, I think it was estimated to be, I want to say it was $18 million of appropriated funding. Uh, whatever the appropriated funding amount was, I forget the exact amount, but it was split-funded between appropriated and gift. And the, um, the legislation reflects that. So it was a Milcon half and gift half. And Congress viewed that as a great thing because it was this public-private partnership and um, it allowed the building to be constructed. Does every building on the yard uh, come from military construction appropriations from Congress? New, new construction does, yeah. Mil Milcon, it's called Milcon. So uh, recent examples of that are Wesley Brown Field House completed in 2008. That was a $54 million. Also an interesting Milcon, it was split over two years, which Milcons which don't, don't do that. Yeah, you don't cross over. No, course, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you yeah. come out of that experience too. Yeah. It crossed over two fiscal years. Um, they were trying to figure out how to get it funded. The Milcon Appropriations Committee said, we're going to split it over these two years. So I think it was... 2005 and 2006 appropriations, um, approximately half each year. So unusual because when you fund a project and appropriated real property, you have to have a complete and usable facility at the end of the appropriation. So that term of art, complete and usable, there was a lot of discussion on how do you get a complete and usable um, piece of Wesley Brown from the first appropriation, and so I mean, it's really tough, tough because it, it's a track and field house, and yeah. you've got that that beautiful facility, and you you're right, you can't use just yeah. part of it. So I think the way that they did it, I, if I remember this correctly, I think that they did the shell of the building and kind of the um, the civil engineering work for it as the complete and usable phase one. And then phase two was outfitting and kind of making the interior uh, functional as a track and field building. Now so that, I, that track is unusual architecturally yeah. as well. Why is that? Well, it banks. So um, it's, it's one of the only ones in the country from what I understand. And it has a um, pneumatic lift. Basically, the track has a pneumatic arm that raises the the rounded ends so that when you're running, you're truly running at optimum um, kind of physics and the geometry of the track. So it, it's, it's unique. I think there's one other one in the country, or at least at the time that we built that, it, there was one other one in the country. That's gonna, something like that has to take a lot of uh, prevent, does it, you have to do a lot of preventive maintenance on that. Sure, yeah. Is, is that really tough to do? Because that is, I mean, I can't imagine, because that gets a lot of use from the midshipmen, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So you don't want to spill water down in there. <laughs> it's one thing. Um, and we raised that whole, th this was right after Hurricane Isabel. So the whole site. That was what, 2003? Three, yeah. September 2003. Um, and that did, that did tens of millions of dollars of damage to the, yeah, to the academy. Like, yeah, like $120 million of damage was what we were funded for the repairs. So basically half of the academy was, was underwater at that point. We had 22 buildings that were flooded, um, ground level flooding or basement flooding, utility tunnels were flooded, um, the, the chiller plant in the basement of Michelson was flooded. Um, it was an incredible amount of damage, so um, 
a huge recovery effort after that, pumping buildings, getting water out of trapped spaces in basements, and because um, then you have problems with mold. And, oh yeah. So yeah. you you so I mean you were I was pretty, you were pretty new at at the position. I wasn't you, in this job yet. Yeah. yeah, I was. I was so I left RTKL. I designed the center section of Bancroft, and then joined Whiting Turner Con- Contracting, which was building at the time. It was building the last phases of Bancroft, so it was finishing wings. I think it was finishing wing seven, and there was some work in wing eight that was still being worked on. Um, and then center section was starting, so the Memorial Hall renovations. Um, the rotunda that was starting as I was joining them and I was hired and I was given the project of renovating Robert Crown Sailing Center so Robert Crown had an addition added to it through that renovation and the existing building was renovated we had just put the roof on the addition when Hurricane Isabel hit in September of 2003 so Immediately following that, we had about a year of just cleanup of buildings, pumping buildings, getting mold out of buildings. I remember walking through um, uh, McDonough Hall with these, I mean, just head globe, you know, kind of size blooms of mold on the walls. And it was just incredible how quickly the mold propagated on drywall in particular because Mm -hmm. it had um, something to feed off of. So it was it was fascinating, but um, so the immediate effort was get the water out, and then the second immediate effort was get the wet drywall out because these these mold blooms were just forming everywhere. So it was a hazmat. It became a hazmat site where these where the mold was propagating, and we brought in a huge industrial hygienist team. Um, we all learned a lot about bleach and how to get <laughs> mold off of surfaces. Um, but we had we had contractors working in every building, primarily focused on pumping water out and getting the mold out immediately. Those were the immediate efforts. We were talking earlier. I mean, your job really is you you have to have some sort of skills as a historian because yeah. of what you do. You're going into the original records. So right now we're in the conference room of Preble Hall, and you've got laid out these maps, uh, these sketches, really early plans. And we were also talking about Jim Cheevers, our historian emeritus, who, uh, Jim, we, we talk about him very often on, the, on this podcast because he was the historian here for 50 years, just retired a few years ago. So there's very little Jim doesn't know about Absolutely. the academy. But I think you and I have a shared experience. It's always, it was always nice once in a while when we actually could find something <laughs> that Jim didn't know. I think I did that with Amelia Earhart. He had searched for the fifth, 40 years or something on Amelia wow, Earhart, wow. her visit here to the Academy, and I finally found something. And, yeah. you know, as, as best as you could get from Jim was, oh, yeah, well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell us how you go about your job when sure. you have to either renovate or, or construct a, a new building here at the Academy. Yeah, so I, as much as I can, I really, I, I treasure Jim's history and um, all the knowledge that he brings to everything I've ever talked with him about. I always say spending time with him, I always learn something. Very true, yeah. Um, I, I love spending time with him still. What I like to do, though, is I like to go back to the source documents every time I can because I just, I find that I can come to my own conclusions and kind of see nuances that you don't 
really see in a quick discussion or a fi- even a five, even a 30-minute discussion with Jim, if you see the source documents, you get you get a nuanced look at it, I think. You're right. You know, there's a, there was a historian of the 20th century, Barbara Tuchman. She wrote Guns of August, et cetera. And she, she said in one of her essays that she only worked from primary sources because if you go to a book, then that person has culled certain material from the primary sources based on their biases, not, not a, a good or ill bias. It's just, hey, this is what I need to write something. Yeah. So they miss some things or just don't pay attention to them. And that seems to be the case with you is because you, you really need to make sure you, your, your data is correct and you have all of the information. I do. I do. And I, I like to see, um, like this map I spread out on the table in front of us, this talks about the property of the Naval Academy and how it was acquired over the years. And what I find fascinating is really seeing where was the natural shoreline, trying to understand how it relates to the buildings that we have at the Academy, um, you know, kind of understanding, it is, is it on the edge of the natural shoreline? Is it on co- completely reclaimed land? Is it a mix of that? And we have a lot of reclaimed land at the academy. Uh, so when people yes. walk around, I bet prob- <laughs> yeah. probably about a quarter to a third of what you walk on or the buildings are on reclaimed land. Yeah, certainly on the lower yard. When I look at this map, which shows it shows um, pieces of property that were purchased over the years, starting with Fort Severn. It's the number one site on the map, um, and it shows where where the natural shoreline was at that time. And then around that, it shows the reclaimed land starting in 1902. Um, there's a piece of reclaimed land just to the north of Fort Severn that shows um, it was reclaimed in 1808 to 1902. So it's just fascinating to me, number one, how early we started to reclaim land and then how quickly it became our model of expansion. So we, start, we started this process, it looks to me like in 1808. The Naval Academy was, was um, established in 1845, so obviously some of this land was reclaimed prior to our establishment. And then after our establishment, it just continued to be a model of expansion. We when I look at our history of buildings, land, how we acquired land, this is a great source document because it talks about, you know, kind of the three, the five acres that were purchased from the state of Maryland, including the governor's mansion. Um, the old governor's, governor's mansion. Right. We, which, we've had that question before. I said, you used to own the governor's mansion? Well, it's a diff- <laughs> different one. Right. Yeah, we didn't quite right. own right out to State Circle or... Yeah. Right, right. Um, the The... Plot, the plots of land, the pieces of land that were purchased, as you look at the dates on this map, too, you can see, you know, we started it on the number one site at Fort Severn, and we were growing into the water with through the reclaimed land. We were also growing into the boundary of Annapolis, so kind of slowly working our way out toward King George Street, which is still our boundary street. It became our boundary street in 1902 as the property along King George Street was purchased. So it's, it's fascinating to me that we were growing in both directions, and you can see it very clearly on, the, on this map. 
And so I like to look at this map and kind of understand, um, you know, when we do any kind of digging on the yard, where potentially would archaeology be something that we need to be concerned about or, or be tracking, kind of do an, a test pit, do a couple test pits prior to doing any kind of project. We're doing a new storm drain on the backyards of the houses on Porter Road right now. And because what we knew about this map and that this was colonial Annapolis, there were other houses here, other properties. The first step there was to do archaeological test pits to see, you know, is there anything there that we need to be concerned about before we run new storm lines through here? Did they find anything? No, they just found um, very disturbed land. Now that was, let's see, the, the cana- there was a, a canal along right. Porter Road, right. uh, late 1890s as they were constructing the chapel. Chapel, right. And so th- what you drive along today on Porter Road was an entire canal so that it was easier to uh, bring in the marble and the granite. Uh, I think most of it was from New England. Um, yeah. So, but this is right on the back side of those those homes. Right, the new storm line is on the back side, and the canal was on the front side. So, um, that there's some images of that canal that are well known. I think I don't. I have never seen images of these houses that were here at that time. I'm sure that they exist. That that would be a great research some project. Sort of, yes, yeah, some sort of painting of yeah. that era. Yeah, as as we were kind of you know, kind of creating new boundaries out into town. I know the the wall didn't exist, so at, at one time it was a small, short fence. Um, there were different boundaries, but as that kind of continued to grow out into town, I just wonder, what did that seam look like between the new Naval Academy at the time, which was the Ernest Flagg plan, and the, the boundary of the historic Annapolis and the colonial Annapolis. We're going to talk about the focus of, of your talk here on basically 1941 to the present, but can you tell us a little bit about Ernest Flagg? I mean, most people visiting the Naval Academy will see these big, mm-hmm. beautiful buildings, Mahan mm-hmm. Hall, Bancroft, the Third Chapel, you know, the beautiful buildings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> should I edit that out? Or <laughs> um and uh, tell us about a little bit about Ernest Flagg and why he was chosen to to do this and what the scope was. Yeah, so he um, was pretty well connected, and I forget exactly what the connection was. I didn't look at that history before I came over. But he was well connected with Congress. He um, was doing a lot of projects. He had, he had just come back from... The École de Beaux Arts. He was a well-trained, you know, very well-regarded architect. And he was in Paris because I, he based right. uh, John Paul Jones's crypt on uh, 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 Bonaparte's in right. Hotel des Invalides. I think is, yes. is where it is. Yeah, yeah. I, someone just asked me about that. So Les Invalides. I say, I say it terribly. I embarrassed at my French. That's right. I have a I have, I, a, I have a Canadian French accent. It's not much better. <laughs> um, but the oculus that looks down on the sarcophagus at that building, Ernest Flagg also wanted to do that here. So at the time, um, I think the history is that we were looking for John Paul Jones's body. It hadn't been found yet. Mm-hmm. So he knew eventually that hopefully it would be found and that the intention was to create a crypt below the chapel for his body. Um, and he wanted that oculus in the chapel. What's an oculus? 
So it's an so opening. It, like a, almost like a window, a, a, a floor. Uh, right. I don't want to call it a floor window, right. but basically something you can see below. Right, okay. right. And in that case, the Oculus was looking down. In some cases, Oculuses are looking up to the sky. So there's different ones. The model that he wanted to use was exactly the Bonaparte model, though, of looking down onto the um, crypt. And I, it also reminds me of um, St. Peter's in Rome, that you're, you look, can look down into the crypt mm-hmm. of, the, um, of the popes. So I think he had models that he was looking at. And I think that um, there's a great article that I have a copy of um, where, that he wrote about his design for the Naval Academy. And he got into this really difficult time period with the federal government on um, the, the government didn't execute his building designs the way that he wanted. And he got, he got into a lawsuit. He, he sued the federal government um, primarily over the chapel because the building was execu- they, they didn't have enough money to execute it per his vision. He wanted it to be granite with you know, the um, limestone on the interior, like Memorial Hall. You kind of look at the two buildings, Memorial Hall, the center section of Bancroft Hall. If you say that was that was Ernest Flagg's material, it was it was his choice of materials, the interior limestone, the exterior granite. When they got to the chapel, they were running out of money, and he his his vision wasn't executed the way that he designed it. So they did a. Um, cast-in-place concrete shell, and there are some great images of this in the article that he wrote. And you can see the, um, the cast-in-place shell of the dome and the structural columns, and then it gets clad in a mix of granite and brick. And brick, he was completely opposed to the use of brick on that building, um, and he was opposed to the use of plaster on the interior. So many people don't know this, but when you walk into the chapel, we, we've done a great job of doing a faux painting on the interior of the chapel. And it looks like limestone. That was his intention was, okay, you're not going to give me limestone. We're going to paint it out so it looks like limestone. Um, in the 50s or 60s, it got painted this very garish paint scheme, and they lost the limestone look. So when we did the renovation in the late 2000s, we went back to his original documents to look at what the paint mix was. And on his documents, he describes um, like three different colors that were mixed to create the faux painting and to create the look of limestone. And we went back to that. We, used, we tried to find those uh, paint colors again. And then we had a very good faux painter come from California who faux painted the interior of the chapel using a color scheme that we took from his documents. That's incredible. So it was, I, I, that's why I like to go back to the source documents. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we couldn't tell much from the black and white photography um, early, early part of the century. There was some, some good black and white photography. It showed a very subtle paint scheme. And I, looking at the photographs and looking at the um, source document of what colors to use, I think we came up with a really great um, kind of faux model that I believe 
emulates what he was trying to accomplish there. You know, colorization has, has advanced so far, and just in the past decade, that's something we ought to probably look at to see if what, what the Academy looked like you know, during yeah. Flagg's era. Right. Let's, let's move ahead 40 years. You know, 1940 is, is a big year for the Academy. The Brigade expands uh, because of the coming war. And tell us about how the Academy's architecture changes during and after the war. Yeah, so interesting. I, I kind of start really looking at the Academy. Mr. Cheevers and I had a kind of an agreement. He would look at the early years, and I was less interested in the early years, honestly, because I'm interested in the buildings that are here and what we're, what we're working with now. And probably more, so, more along the lines of what you studied. I mean, you, went, you went to college, you went to right. RISD, right. and you studied these periods. Right. Yeah. I studied the materials. Yeah, RISD likes modern architecture. So I, when I was there, I worked for the State Historic Preservation Officer as an internship. I was lucky to do that because it really, I mean, I was living in this great historic town, Providence, Rhode Island, looking at these beautiful historic buildings every day on my way to and from classes. And then I started working for the SHPO. And I just, I fell in love with historic architecture and with the ability to understand a lot from it and to understand the craftsmanship of it. So RISD, modern architecture, loves modern architecture. I did okay with that. I graduated at the top of my class with a design award. Um, I did fine with it. I just, my passion was historic architecture. so in my career, I started out with a couple design firms. The second design firm I went to was doing um, renovations of old mill buildings in Providence and turning them into affordable housing. Yeah, that was a whole big change in New England once the mills went away in the 70s and 80s and I right. grew up in a mill town in Maine. And you know you saw these in Manchester, New Hampshire, they were doing this. So that era of, of the 80s and 90s is really when they start converting them to Restaurants, banks, office spaces, condos, et cetera. Yeah, so I became really interested in what we called at that time adaptive reuse, which is taking an old building, adapting it to a new use, and finding a new kind of a new vision for the building. I loved that. Um, And it allowed me to do kind of modern treatment of modern architecture and modern design in a historic building shell. So it was this marrying of the two things that I loved and I felt like I was good at. So coming to the Naval Academy, um, we don't really do so much of that. We do, you could say Bancroft Hall is an adaptive reuse because we took, we took a building shell in the dormitory wings, gutted them, and then made them into modern dormitory rooms for the modern brigade. Essentially, though, it's the same building. It's build- the same purpose. Same building, It's, the, same it's like if you took yeah. uh, Samson and redid it, you'd still need it for classrooms. Classrooms, right. yeah, yeah. So we don't do real adaptive reuse here, but it's still, it's still interesting to me. But in the 40s, so to answer your question, that was a long way to come around to your question. In the 40s, we were still looking to continue to expand the land here. This map doesn't show it, but on the... Um, kind of as you come down King George Street, as you're coming toward Gate 1. Which is right, really, at the dead center of town of Annapolis. Right, right. Um, just as you're coming down King George Street, that was our boundary, all the way down to the water. So it went straight down. To the left would have been the Naval Academy, and to the right would have been downtown. To the right was a neighborhood called Hell's Point. 
and you still hear it referred to a little bit. Um, it was a thriving community. There was housing there. It was there was a lumber yard there, gas station. It was a th- thriving little community that in 1941 the federal government bought. They cleared all the residents out, and it became, they raised it. So they they tore down all the buildings. They um, created this kind of wide expanse of land, and we played sports on it at that time. And that's where, let's see, not Halsey Fieldhouse. uh, Yeah, it's uh, Halsey Halsey Fieldhouse is right there. Yeah, yeah. So we were in the war at the time, 1941. We were in World War II. There wasn't money to build Halsey Fieldhouse, but the vision was Halsey Fieldhouse will be built on this land. It eventually was. So Halsey was built in 1959. Uh, I'm sorry, it was completed in 1957. So 1954, we come out of the war, Congress appropriates money for Halsey Fieldhouse, and it's completed in 1957. So um, it took from 1941 to 1957 to get to realize that vision of using that land. And while we were playing sports on it, it wasn't really being utilized um, the way that the original kind of appropriation of the land said that it would be used for. So there was a lot of anger and resentment within the city and within the residents that were forced off of that land. Some houses in that neighborhood have have remained. The Sands House is a good example. One of the oldest um, structures here in Annapolis is still in that, and it was in that neighborhood, is still there. Just acquired Historic Annapolis, um, just sold it to a private resident who will be revitalizing it. So some some little pieces of that neighborhood remain, but for the most part, it was raised. It was a l- largely African American. It community. was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. So I a research project I've always been interested in is where did they go? What what neighborhood did they establish as they left that neighborhood? And that's something I've been interested in researching. I haven't That'd done that. That'd be a great topic. Yeah, it'd be a great research yeah. project. And Mr. Cheevers might know a lot about that. I'm sure people here do know about that. And there would still be people here, I bet, in the community who would remember, who probably lived there. Probably. Or their parents or yeah. grandparents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be a great research project. Um, anyway, so that, that, I think, set a tone of um, a little resentment between city residents and the Naval Academy. And I think could have been kind of the starting pieces of historic preservation and the, the groundswell of it here in the city because the neighborhood had some historic, important historic you know, kind of elements to it. The watermen lived there, kind of that that um, working waterfront, the relationship to the water. That was lost um, to some degree when that neighborhood was lost. And I think the relationship between historic preservation and that action of taking that land is is probably what really kind of made the groundswell of historic preservation here in Annapolis. I don't know that for sure, but that's my suspicion. How much did the the Navy build during World War II here? We built um, pretty, so we were aggressively expanding right after the war. We were looking for more expansion opportunity. So it, in, didn't, it was at that time that we were looking at purchasing St. John's College? Yeah, yeah, 1945 and 1946. And we've finally done it. 
Oh, sorry, we haven't. We've just we've just sent over a few companies of Mitchell right. to stay there. <laughs> so eventually, they're just going to be squatters, and we'll we'll take it over. <laughs> no, I I laughed when um, you know we we leased St. John's dormitories this semester for the brigade with COVID. Um, we've we've looked at St. John's as an expansion for so many so many times here at the Naval Academy. 1945, 1946, I think was the first time we were trying to respond to a need for more officers in the Navy. And so Congress was saying, we need to you know, create more throughput at the Naval Academy or somewhere. And they were, they were looking at different options and they looked at how do we expand the Naval Academy? We need more academic buildings, we need more uh, birthing spaces, more dormitories, more training spaces, more fields, we need all of that. And how do we accomplish it here in Annapolis? And you can see on the map, we were constrained. Um, there was private property on the King George Street boundary and water, you know, kind of on the water boundary side. And so they, they an easy answer seemed to be, let's look at appropriating St. John's. And they had just come out of the appropriation of the Hells Point neighborhood. So there was kind of this model of appropriating land taking it for other uses. St. John's um, wasn't really thrilled with the idea, but the city residents were really happy with it because it meant that the Naval Academy stayed in Annapolis because the other options were, Congress was looking at, a, I think, a property in Arizona. They were looking at properties in other states. Yeah, they were looking at mu actually having multiple right. Naval Academies, like one on the Gulf Coast, one in the Pacific yeah. Coast, yeah. So the Annapolis city residents were saying, this is our, our lifeblood. You know, we work there. We, this is our income. We, we benefit from the Naval Academy being here. So the city residents largely supported the annexation of St. John's by the Naval Academy. St. John's didn't like it, and they were opposed to it. They were, they were being vocal about that. Um, what finally saved that property, though, is the ROTC program. Congress came up with the, the decision and a model of putting students, Navy officers, through private universities through the ROTC program, and that is what saved St. John's at that time. And um, kind of the ability to create more throughput through private universities and not create this mega naval academy model either you know in multiple sites or here in Annapolis that's really kind of what happened that time with the St. John's annexation so that was that was an important piece of the history we we came out of that though and we said okay we need more land we need more infill and we started looking at so the map that we're looking at here shows the original Farragut Field. Shortly after the St. John's kind of effort, we started adding on more fill. So we added more Farragut Field. We created another big landfill out toward Spa Creek and toward the city. Um, and then on the Severn River side, we infilled Dewey Basin, which was part of the original flag plan infilled that, so this was 1961, and then created um, a larger Dewey field outside of that. So the map shows the 
um, acreage that was added with landfill up to 1902, and it created the Dewey Basin for Flags Plan, and then just kept adding, at, at, in the early 60s, kept adding more reclaimed land. Also out on Hospital Point, the Sherman Field was added. I think that was in the 60s as well. I don't have an exact date on that, but... And for, for folks from Annapolis, that Sherman Field is right, basically right below the Academy Bridge on the, over the Severn. Right, the big field. So when you look at the natural shoreline out there, it was the kind of very natural hillside that you see rising out of that field. And then quickly, that natural shoreline went up to the hill, and, and now it goes, the natural shoreline is kind of at the base of the hill and the reclaimed land is in front of it going out to the seawalls. And that's where the, the, the cemetery is located, the columbarium. And the columbarium right. obviously has some problems, uh, which we might touch upon a little Flooding. bit. Flooding, sure. What's the, uh, is the next phase of, of uh, architecture of the academy then the like uh, Rickover, Michelson, Chauvenet buildings that are uh, along, sort of on, the, on one side of Stribling Walk? Very shortly after this landfill was created, Ben Morrell, Admiral Ben Morrell, led... The father of the Seabees. Yes, and we have a memorial here to him on the yard. Um, he led a commission. It was called the Morrell Commission. And he was looking at how to expand the Naval Academy to respond to universities around the country were expanding their math and science curriculum and creating more engineering programs. We did the same thing. We went toward more majors at that time, and we, were need, we needed more buildings, more land to support the new academic requirements that went along with that. So he looked at really kind of a number of ways to do that, and, and I think he was, let me just check this. He led, yeah, so he led the master plan, which was later followed by John Carl Wernicke's master plan, and this is, this is his master plan. So when the master plans were created back then, they created these beautiful bound books with original sketches. This document, the, Car the Wernicke master plan, is a, just a beautiful document with, um, he has original, his original sketches all through it. So it's a great document to look through just for that. But it shows when the morale plan was, disband was um, abandoned, and, and part of the morale plan was looking at Hanover Street. So this is, this is another really important expansion that we looked at. And that's right outside of Gate 3. Right. And some, of the, some people, again, who haven't been to Annapolis may have seen the movie Patriot Games. Hanover Street is where Harrison Ford is crossing over going along Maryland Avenue, but Hanover is where the terrorist jeep comes out of. It's right outside of the gate. Yeah, so um, when you look at our map today, you see the boundary along King George Street coming from Gate 1, and then it jogs out into a neighborhood, including Hanover. Um, what else is in there? A little bit of Maryland Avenue, a little bit of College Street, there's a, there's a pocket of Colonial Annapolis that sits between the Naval Academy, and it seems like a natural place to expand out again into the city boundary. And so the, the morale model, the commission that he led, looked at acquiring that land. And there's, a great, there's some great properties in that neighborhood. Um, there's a 
house that was owned by a signer of Declaration of Independence. There's other really nice historic properties around that. But that one property alone, the, the house owned by um, the signer of Declaration of Independence, I forget which one it was. Because we've had seven or eight here in Annapolis. Yeah. yeah. All the houses are still yeah. standing here, which is um, pretty incredible. But that one house, uh, I think it was Chase's house. Yeah, Chase Lloyd is on Maryland and King George. Anyway, it was one of the signers of Declaration of Independence. I forget which one. Important properties around it, though. And his, his commission looked at acquiring that land, tearing down those houses, and expanding the Naval Academy out into it. And the, uh, the neighborhood, the city, led by St. Clair Wright, went crazy. So she was a local preservationist that was very prominent in the city, very well regarded. She led the really the revisioning of downtown, the revisioning of Main Street, kind of let's get back to our colonial roots, let's make it look less um, kind of visually distractive and kind of find a way to return back to the colonial roots of the city. So she did a great job. Um, and was well-regarded. She led this movement against the annexation of the Hanover Street area by the Naval Academy, and the Morrell Commission basically was put on a shelf. And then the Wernicke plan, the, so the Naval Academy said, okay, we need, we need to expand, though. So they hired John Carl Wernicke, very prominent architect in the 1960s. He was doing federal work. He knew the Kennedys. He knew um, he was very connected. He did the Kennedy grave sites, for example, at Arlington. He was doing um, some fairly large um, federal, very high-profile federal commissions. He was hired to do the Naval Academy new master plan, and he took the Morrell Commission's work and said, "Okay, how can we do this?" He he led. If you read his document, his master plan, he led the faculty and staff and the administration through a fact-based expansion. He had them document exactly how many square feet of academic space we needed in each department, how many kind of administrative functions, how many training functions. He looked at the whole Naval Academy. He looked at utilities and how to do a utility master plan at the time. He looked at parking. He looked at, you know, kind of all the stuff. The most stuff. important issue. Yeah, faculty. parking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he looked at all the stuff that makes this place run. And when you read through this document, he, he advocated for let's renovate spaces rather than build a lot of new buildings. He included a renovation of Isherwood, Gr- Griffin, and Melville buildings which were later torn down for to make Alumni Hall. And all those names uh, remained with the entrances at Alumni Hall. Right, right. Um, but he, in his plan, had a renovation plan for those buildings and was advocating not, not to tear it down. I, I don't think that was even discussed. It was just how to renovate it and what are the appropriate groups that should be in that building. He had one new math and science building, and it was called Michelson Hall. And when you look at the plans in this, build, in this book... Michelson Hall, which later became Michelson, and Chauvenet Halls, 
um, looks very much like it does today. How, it, do you, how do you describe that kind of architecture? I mean, we know the old Ernest Flagg is, is Beaux-Arts. What do you call that, modernist? Or? It's modern, yeah. So uh, this is really important for me. It was the first kind of modern introduction of architecture after Flagg's buildings. And so you looked at that, that, that precedent that they set is the precedent we follow today. He didn't copy Flagg's architecture. He didn't cop, try to make it look like it was a new, or I'm sorry, he didn't try to make it look like it was a historic building on a historic campus. He said, no, we're going to make this a modern building on a historic campus. That's the precedent we still do today. Why? Why do we go with his precedent and not flags? So it's a great precedent, and it's, it's a precedent that historic preservationists really prefer. They, they want the architecture to speak to the time and place in which it was built and to reflect the use of the, you know, kind of the academic mission in our case or the, the use of the building in other cases. So in our case, the buildings use similar material as Bancroft Hall, and that's a great tool within the historic preservation kind of toolkit of you use the same palette of materials, same colorations, but you do it in a modern treatment. So the Michelson Chauvenet complex has a mansard roof. It sort of mimics, I'm sure it was intended to mimic the mansard roof on Bancroft Hall. Um, it used copper on it, which is a... Like a dome. Yeah, predominant material here on our roofs. It used granite on the facade, but it did the fenestration treatment in a very modern way. So the windows are very modern. They're obviously buildings from the 1960s, 70s vintage, and you can tell that by looking at them. Um, that's, that's a preferred methodology of adding to a historic campus or a historic site. So if, we, if you were to make a book, a master plan that's called the Sarah Phillips Master Plan for the 2020s, 2030s, you would use the same materials roughly that have been used on other buildings, but would you be able to change the design? Yeah, I think you could. Um, Hopper Hall. Which is our, our newest one, just opened up right. last week, a right. few weeks ago. So you look at it, um, this, this is... I think the way that it's really successful architecturally is that the massing of it, the size of it, the scale of it, it's approximately the same as the Wernicke buildings. So, and Wernicke's scale and massing looks back at the Bancroft buildings. So you, you see this series of precedents and how the scale of the yard was established by looking at Bancroft, how the use of materials was established by looking at Bancroft, um, the buildings are generally about the same size. And so we wanted to follow that tradition with Hopper and say Hopper will follow the Wernicke model as its precedent, which followed the Bancroft building as its precedent. And we wanted it to take a modern flavor, though. So you look at Hopper, and it mimic, it, it's sympathetic to um, the Wernicke buildings, certainly in a massing and scale perspective. It takes the materials in a slightly new direction. It uses more bronze. It uses precast concrete. Um, so it's using similar materials, same palette of materials, but not the exact same. 
So let's talk about the tip of the iceberg issue here because Hopper is built on reclaimed land. How deep did you have to drill to to put some supporting uh, pilings for for this massive building? Yeah, I was I should have looked that up before I came over. It's it's on the order of 130 feet for most of the piles. Um, kind of out toward the edge of the building near the street is where the deepest piles are. And then as you get back into the corner closer to Nimitz and Rickover where that the buildings meet in that corner, they were much shallower, like I want to say on the order of half of that distance. Um, so you, you drive the piles until you get the resistance that you need, and then you can stop driving them. So you're, as you're driving them, you're measuring the resistance to make sure you can get enough structural load. You don't know until you actually do that, do you? There's really well, no way to test? Well, yeah, we do. So we do a lot of um, geotechnical studies prior to the, and during design. So prior to design and then during design, you do soil borings, and you, you bring up soil borings from around the site to look at what, it, what is the type of soil we're dealing with, how much bearing capacity does it have, and kind of look at um, how will a load be supported in it. It's it's fascinating engineering that I'm not an expert on, but I find it really interesting. There's structural pull on the pile from the consolidating material around it. So when you do a pile design here, if you're if you're driving a pile in material that is not natural fill, you're you're also dealing with the structural force of the consolidating fill around it. In Hopper, it's been factored in, so we factored in that downward pull of the consolidating load around it, around those piles. So in this fi- the final uh, part of this discussion, Sarah, I want to kind of carry this out because what you are doing right now has an impact for the really next century of the Naval Academy. You know, we've got rising sea levels. This isn't we don't talk politics on the show, but the fact is, if you look at the columbarium over uh, at Hospital Point. Anytime there's a tide, that place is flooded. Mm-hmm. If there's a storm, it's flooded even more. And there are portions around here that are, and I've just seen that over the past 15 and a half years that I've been here, that it's become more pronounced. Can you tell us how the Naval Academy addresses something like that? Because we're right on the water. You have these massive sur- tidal surges from the Chesapeake Bay whenever there's a hurricane. And you have all these other factors that you've just discussed. So how do you plan? How do how do the people today plan out to, in order to preserve the academy uh, buildings and structure for the next 100 or 200 years? Yeah, so in 2015, we formed a group called the Sea Level Rise Advisory Council. And the membership of it was very specifically targeted to get a wide range of scientific look. So we, we involved uh, faculty and staff from the oceanography, from naval architecture, ocean engineering, Dave Kriebel, Gina Henderson, Emil Petruncio at the time, he still volunteers on the group. Some of the other professors, Alex Davies, who's really more interested in um, kind of the weather pattern changes. Um, so everyone brought this different perspective of science from that group, from the academic side. From the practicing side, we involved me, um, some Naval Facilities Engineering Command staff members, um, Kevin Jenkins, who's the head of the planning department. Uh, now Zoe Johnson has joined our group. She has worked for Department of Natural Resources and NOAA 
looking at climate change issues and how coastal resiliency issues. Um, she's been a huge benefit on our group. And then we also included City of Annapolis um, so that we had a, a joint discussion of we share, you know, shoreline, we share boundaries between city property, private property, and the Naval Academy. We wanted it to be a coordinated response. So the membership was very specifically targeted to include those audiences. And then, and then we very specifically looked at, we, we developed a charter, and we, we said the first thing we're going to do is look at the science and understand you know, we're hearing all these different ranges. What applies to Annapolis? What, are, what is the science that we should be using for this local area of land? And really tailor it to Annapolis. We weren't trying to solve the Navy's problems. We were just trying to look at the Naval Academy's problems and Annapolis's problems by, by extension. And then from the science we looked at, so that, that gave us kind of the title range of what we should expect through 2100. Then we looked at what happens during storms? What happens during a 100-year storm, a 50-year storm, a 20-year storm? What happens during high tide, low tide? And look at all the conditions of a storm in different, different um, kind of tidal elements. And then, then we looked at um, kind of the yard and said, OK, start applying this to the yard. And we looked at where, where do we have problems based on that science and those events, and what should we be planning to? We, we adopted a planning um, number and said this is kind of the range of planning um, for tidal changes that we expect to see through 2100. And then we started looking at how do we increase our resiliency so we're in, we're in the last phase of our charter now, which is increasing the resiliency. Um, NAFAC just awarded a master plan, what I call a master plan, for looking at resiliency around the yard. And we'll develop a series of projects through this, pro through this project. Um, and from that list of projects, we'll prioritize them and determine you know, kind of funding sources, what kind of funding we're talking about, how much and then start to talk with Navy leadership and with um, the Board of Visitors about how do we go about protecting the Naval Academy. In your efforts, do you speak with other governments, and I'm thinking in particular uh, the Netherlands or Venice. Yeah. You know, There are yeah. places that, that have significant water issues, but they've developed these technologies to mitigate that, especially in the Netherlands. Right. But you do speak with them? So we, um, Dave Kriebel was, offered to take a sabbatical and we funded his travel around the world. And he went to the Netherlands, Germany, um, he went all over Louisiana, Miami, uh, New Orleans, and looked at what are the different tools that are being used. He made some great contacts um, and we, he's, he brought back a great set of um, tools to use. And some of them are really, really applicable here, like berms, raising seawall heights, you know, flood control stations. Um, so he brought back a great set of tools that now we're looking at and applying to this master plan process and saying, okay, what's the best, most effective way to protect this piece of land? Sarah Phillips, architect of the Naval Academy, 
Thanks for your time, Sarah. It's always good to have you back in Pebble Hall. Appreciate everything you do for us, so thank you very much. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, please leave feedback on any of the platforms you're listening to, and have a great week. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.